You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So this morning, five verses we aren't going to get through all of that. There's no way. But we're going to look at specifically uh, this trio of, of phrases that um, the Apostle Paul is, uses frequently. Um, we're, we're not going to get all the way through verse 8. But Paul is writing, as you get back into the book of Colossians, there, there are many reasons that you can kind of gather from reading of the book why he is writing this letter to the church at Colossae. But one reason that's clear as we get into this opening of the letter is that he wants to assure them of the genuineness of their faith and of their full inclusion into the family of God through faith in the word of God that was proclaimed to them by Epaphras. All right, so Paul has never met the church at Colossae. We covered that. If you want to hear those sermons, they are on our podcast feed. So you can go to our website, mountairfirstchristianchurch.org, or just the christalone.podbean.com, or find the links on our Facebook page and, and listen to those sermons. But Paul's never visited Colossae. He hasn't been there. What happened was likely while Paul was at Ephesus, uh, Epaphras heard the gospel, was converted himself, and then he went back up the Lycan River Valley and testified in Colossae and, and, and Laodicea, Hierapolis, this whole little trio of cities that are there, and, and they heard the word of the gospel. Well, evidently what has happened is you go on in the book of Colossians, false teachers came in and began to say, well, it's great that you know Jesus, but let me tell you how you go farther. I mean, Jesus is a great front door into the Christian faith, but let us tell you all the secret knowledge that you must have to, to go further, that God has more than just the gospel message. And it was causing some, some unrest within the Colossian church. And so Epaphras comes in and meets Paul, maybe at Ephesus, probably at Rome, and, and shares this with him. And so Paul is writing back to the church at Colossae to confirm to them that the message that they heard from Epaphras was the true gospel. And you can see that in chapter two, if you read the book of Colossians, talking about um, all these people who go on about visions of angels and they've had dreams and they've had special revelations that are 
that are revealing the more that must be known in order to be true Christians. And Paul says in chapter two, to, don't be fooled. Don't follow those people who go on about their dreams, but uh, that the message they've heard from Epaphras, the true gospel is the true gospel. Paul's message to them is that the gospel is the central truth. The message of who Christ is as the Supreme one, the message of who Christ is, and what he has done, and that, that a continual grounding of yourself in that truth is what gives you the fuel for living in this fallen world. It is the hub. It is the center. It is, it is not just the front door into Christianity that you then move on into super spiritual things. The gospel is the constant grounding of the life of the Christian. So Paul is, is saying, he's writing to them, to confirm to them that what Epaphras has taught them, that message is the true gospel. It is the true message. And we'll look more at that, the truthfulness of that next week. But for this week, we're looking at just verses three through 5a. This is where we see this triad of faith, love, and hope, or maybe Paul says it in faith, hope, and love. But you've heard that triad, right? Like in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? You hear the, the trio of the faith, hope, and love. These three remain. The greatest of these is love. You hear it in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, this triad that's familiar that Paul uses almost as shorthand for a description of the Christian life. It would seem like having faith, loving others, having the hope of heaven. It's kind of this familiar triad of what makes a Christian. Faith in Christ, love for the other love for others love for the saints and and hope uh, of heaven and so here in the opening of colossians this is exactly the things that he he uh, brings up and and writes about their confidence in the gospel because of these three things occurring in their life all of these are present realities in the believer's life they've because they've heard the word of truth They've heard the gospel. It's been proclaimed to them by Epaphras. And because they've heard the word of the gospel, faith in Christ has been wrought in their heart, which has then produced love for the saints, which also then is flowing out of this hope that is stored up for them in heaven. The point is that this point is important because what we must know is that these aren't just qualities that group of, that a group of people naturally possess. Um, this isn't just like the Church of Colossae is somehow a naturally predisposed to just really being believing, you know, a very, very uh, faith filled people or a very loving and generous people or a very hope filled. Just uh, they're very they're maybe there's not this like they're a group of real optimists. You know, they're always just hopeful. Paul is writing to this. These, these are dispositions that they don't have natural proclivities for, but these are qualities that are produced by the hearing of the gospel and coming to faith, coming to regeneration, coming to new life in Christ. Some people do have hopeful personalities. Some just naturally believe everything is going to work out. Some people really like to serve others. They're very loving and helpful and generous and empathetic. But Paul is talking about something more than just natural dispositions. This is, this is what Christians should be known for. These are the qualities that exist within the Christian's life. Faith in Christ, love for the saints, hope 
flow, all that flowing from the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. So then on these three things, what is produced here? It is faith in Christ Jesus, right? He says, we thank our, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Almost everyone possesses faith of some type. Um, what matters most here is not just the possessing of a faith. Like it isn't, I'm so glad, I thank God that I've heard that you, uh, that you have faith. Paul has this very important modifier of, of hearing that you have faith in Christ. What makes the fundamental different is the object of your faith. I got a slide for that too here. Throw that up there. What everyone possesses faith of some type, but what makes the fundamental difference is the object of your faith, not just a generic faith. You know, you go and say, well, you got to have faith or Oh, I'm watching those YouTube playlists, I those silly ads come up and I saw some lady that had some shirt on that said, have faith over fear or something. And it was a commercial for a, a Bible-based diet plan. I'm like, what is the point? Of that? that was, oh, have faith that, I don't know, that God can help you shed your pounds. And I'm, you know, it's great if you want to lose weight. I'm not saying anything against that. It was just kind of like, whatever. But, you know, what matters most is not just the having of faith, but the object of that faith. Um, you know, the countless people today would confess a belief in God. Oh, I believe in God. Well, okay, great. Who is God? That's, that's going to be the determining question. Just to say you believe in God is not a confession of Christianity. For, for many people, God is their own self, their own whims, their own desires. So to have belief in God is like saying, I believe that I exist and have things that I want to do. It isn't it isn't just having some sort of bland or generic faith. Many would say that they have faith that things will work out okay. You know, that just have faith. It's going to be okay. But what matters most is the object of your faith. We do not have faith as some end in itself or even faith in faith. Like some people place their faith that they in that in having faith. But what 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 is most important, those who are God's people have faith in Christ, right? And there's an important and incredible distinction here that Paul is writing about. He's, this is not something that is produced on the individual's own effort. Like as though this is, this is evidence of having heard the gospel and having been saved, that regeneration has occurred. Like he's, he's giving thanks not that you decided to believe, but there's this ongoing present reality in the life of the Colossian church. We thank God ever since we have heard of your faith, this, this living, this active, this ongoing faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying that faith is something that you do to be saved. It's an ongoing reality in the lives of those who are truly saved. Now, Wait a second, he's Darren. Now we Acts 16, you know, says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And yes and amen, absolutely. That is the message to the Philippian jailer. That is the message to you today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But we must not think this is something that we, by the force of our own will, produced. This is something that God works in our hearts. And when he does, 
faith in Christ is the result. Regeneration from hearing the gospel, hearing the news that you are a sinner who needs to confess and repent and turn to Christ and that Christ has come to earth, live the righteous life you should have lived, died the death that you deserve so that by repentance and faith in him, you be forgiven of your sins and justified and made right in God's sight. And upon hearing that message, the Holy Spirit works salvation in your heart. And then faith in Christ is the fruit of that. You believe. And so Paul is rejoicing that they have this faith in Christ. This is why the Christian ought to live with incredible joy because your faith in Christ is evidence and God has done a work in your heart. God has done something inside of you that has given you eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Christ and to believe in him. What an amazing thing it is that God has done in saving sinners. You could diagnose where your faith is at by asking where you turn to when times surprise you. Where do you go when, when life does go upside down? When you you know, have a, a bad report or just get worried about the future or, you know, a national, a global pandemic comes on and uh, unemployment goes through the roof and the economy is all this worried things going on. Where do you turn? You know, do you turn to your own self, to my own, my own resources, my own abilities? Do you, do you just totally shut down? Do you gather all the information? What do you, where do you turn when, when things, when you're at your most critical, most vulnerable moments? Do you think the answer is out there somewhere for you to find and for you to accomplish? Or do you run to Christ? Well, the Christian, Paul is writing, thankful for the church at Colossae because of their faith in Christ. It is a turning to Christ, an ongoing, repeated turning to Christ over and over again. So he, he's thankful because he's heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that they have for one another. Love that they have for the saints is what um, my ESV says, the love that you have for all the saints. What does this work of God produce, regenerating your heart, bringing you a new life, trusting in faith in Christ, what does, it, what does it generate? What does it produce? It produces love for others. And specifically, your fellow believers, the saints, those who are in your church, in the church globally, but yes, even locally in your local church. But some might object immediately, immediately to that and say, well, there you're just playing favorites. You're just loving those who, who um, you know, are, are already in your group. But, it, you know, isn't that showing favoritism? Why does it produce love specifically for those who believe like you do? So you only love those who are like you could be an objection. But those questions miss the reality of the church, the nature of the church, because the church by its nature, by its definition, is incredibly diverse. People from every tribe, tongue and language brought together into one body, gathered together, not because of their their um equal or, or, you know, the same dispositions that they have, the same loves that they have, the same wants and desires, all of these various different groups of people brought together into the church. And so that, yeah, faith in Christ produces love for the saints, which is an incredible thing to think about because it is costly love for those who really aren't like you at all, but they just share this common savior. 
and it breaks down all the dividing walls and breaks down all of the prejudices and all the wants and desires and preferences because of the unity that is produced in Christ. People from all different walks of life hear the gospel and are saved and brought into the church. So why Paul goes on, we'll read later in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. He says that in Christ there is neither uh, Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, no barbarian, no Scythian. No. There's no Jew nor Greek, no barbarian, Scythian, no slave or free, for Christ is all and in all. And he's listing out this very polar ends of the spectrum of people, Jews, Greeks, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, all of them brought into the church. And because of this faith in Christ, it produces love for one another. So Paul's rejoicing, their faith in Christ, their love for the saints. And all of that, Paul orders this interestingly, because he says it all comes from the hope. It all flows from this hope that is laid up for you in heaven. We got to be careful to not miss what Paul is saying here. This is the biblical writer's explanation of where our hope is ultimately laid. Commentator Dick Lucas in his commentary that he writes says that this to grasp this, that our ultimate hope is in, is in heaven. To grasp this is to gain a very different perspective from that of today when this world easily means all. When this world means all, we're living entirely wrapped up for this life. We, all of our energy, all of our care, all of our concern, all of our efforts, all of our prayers go towards just this life. And so it's, it's very important to grasp this is to gain and realize that Christianity does have a polar different perspective than, than the world that we are the world means all to those outside of Christ. But in Christ, when they hear the gospel, you see a hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Do we, do you think only in terms of this life or do you think of the next life? Where are your hopes placed? Are they placed in an easy life here? Is your hope placed in a pleasant future here on this earth in this life? Do your hopes lie in the one day being free from obligation? Do your hopes lie in one day being free of difficulty? Do your hopes lie in, in this life one day being free from stress and difficulty? If those are the places where your hope is anchored, you are missing the message of the gospel. Paul knows of no such life. And he's writing to the Colossians to let them know that they'll have no such life. In fact, faith in Christ and love for others, costly love for others that flow naturally out of the Christian's life will almost ensure and make sure that the hopes for this life will not be fulfilled. Because as you look around and you see your neighbor in need, you gladly part with what would bring you comfort in order to serve them, in order to love the others, in order to you pour yourself out for the sake of, of others in this following in the pattern of our Savior. Now, this isn't just this one random section from Paul saying this. We find this is a very real mentality in much of our scripture, Titus 1 Verses one through three, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope 
of eternal life. That the Christian focus is not getting my best life now, not to rip on that too much, but I mean, it isn't about Jesus help me in this life, though certainly that does happen, but in a very different way than what we often think. The, the Christian message is this hope in heaven, this hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted. And also it says uh, in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his, his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, where kept in heaven for you. Where is their hope placed? It is a hope that is with Christ who is seated in the heavens. This is Paul writes, faith in Christ, love for all the saints flowing from a hope that is laid up for heaven. So there's two ways that I think this affects us today. Two ways that this hope that is laid up in heaven that produces in us uh, faith in Christ, that produces in us love for the brothers. Two, um, two ways that this actually does impact our lives. I got a slide for that or not. Yes, I do. We're getting there. So the first way this does impact our life is that future hope is a real hope. Like to talk about as though it, there's this future hope, this future reality, this hope of heaven laid up for you. It is a real hope. Um, illustration that I've heard before is of a, of a wife who is waiting for her husband, pretend it's beyond a World War II or whatever. And so her husband's been overseas at war and she's at home waiting for him to return, doesn't really have any news. So she's, she's upset. She's distraught. She's lonely. She is longing for her husband to return. You know, it's just, there's all sorts of, uh, she's unenergetic, tired, sad, upset, all these things going on in her life. But then suddenly she gets a letter. She gets news that he is on a ship and he's coming home, that there is this future reunion that is going to happen. He'll arrive in two weeks. Now, what has changed in this wife's life? Nothing. I mean, it's still two weeks away. But what has, but has what she has changed incredibly, all of a sudden she's getting the house ready. All of a sudden she's energetic. She's calling friends. She's whistling or singing around the house because she knows this day is coming. She has a future hope that absolutely makes a real difference in her present state even though it may not actually change physically anything. All she has is this promised future. She has this promised hope. And so you can say, well, promised hope really isn't anything. Well, I think the wife in that situation or anyone who's longing for that real future, if they are know that their future is this guaranteed reality, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference because hope for the future makes a great difference for the joy that we live with today. And the second way that future hope impacts us is that future hope liberates you to then engage in acts of costly love. A solid future hope liberates you to make sacrificial acts of love today. Not only does it impact your joy, but it will drive 
and empower costly love for others. You know, it's easy to love people when other when everything's going well. You know, I mean, my life's fine. Your life's fine. Uh, we love everybody. But when difficulty comes into an individual's life, that's when you really begin to see if there is any actual costly love. It's what actually uh, distinguished Christians at the in the early Roman Empire when Christianity was just being formed that uh, children would often they were a great burden, and so. Um, one of the ways they would get rid of kids is just expose them. And so if they had a child and didn't want it, they might just set it outside and let it die. And Christians would go, because children are expensive. <laughs> they're a lot of work. I love them. I love my own greatly, dearly. But they are expensive and they do take a lot of work. And it was no different back then. And so if you didn't want the expense, it was a lot of responsibility. And, and they didn't really pay off for a long time. And, you know, so it's like they didn't, if you didn't want you just expose it. And what the Christians would do is they would go around and they would rescue these infants and they would raise them and they would pay for them on their own. They would, of their own resources, give costly love because faith in Christ, love for others based upon flowing from the hope of heaven. They weren't looking for how can I have the most success, the most fun, the most ease in this life. They had a hope bigger than that. And it empowered them in faith for Christ and costly love for others. If there's no solid foundation underneath the motive to love those who have nothing to offer you, costly love will be left behind. But for the Christian, that's not possible. To be spent in service for others, especially those who cannot pay you back, is the heartbeat of our faith. We serve a Savior who spent himself for our salvation who gave of himself, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he gave himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross uh, for our, our salvation. So is this, in conclusion, is this faith in Christ and love for others springing up from your hope in heaven? It does so when you hear either for the first time or remember again the good news of the gospel truth, Christ died to save sinners. Your forgiveness has been paid for on the cross. It's bringing reconciliation between you and your creator. This reconciliation working through faith in Christ's work on your behalf secures you eternally to God the Father. Christ is your mediator. The Holy Spirit is now working inside of you and on you to make you more like Jesus. The message to the Colossians, and I would argue also for us, is to not think that we move past this, that they even could, but instead to ground everything that they have, to ground all that they do, and to even ground all that they are on the supremacy of who Christ is and his unfailing love for his people. Are we grounded there today? You don't graduate from the gospel. You don't graduate from what Christ has done for you. You anchor yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into faith in Christ, who he is and what he has done, love for others because of flowing from the hope that is stored up for us in heaven that has been brought about for us through Christ and his work alone. May God help us ground ourselves 
in that reality today. What we all need most and what you need from me is not a message of, on coronavirus or any more of that. What we need to remember most of all is the good news of the gospel, that there is a real hope laid up for us in heaven that has been brought about for us, not by our own doing, but by Christ and his work. And may we plant our joy and anchor ourselves there today. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see this. If anyone listening has never trusted in you in this way, I pray that right now, God, you would bring about regeneration in their heart, that faith in Christ would spring up in them, that they would confess they are a sinner deserving of your justice and judgment, but that Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for their sin, that they could be forgiven and, and trusting in Christ, be reconciled to you, adopted into your family, reconciled to you, given an eternal, unfailing hope. For those who are listening this morning and who know that, Father, help us never to take our eyes from the glorious grand realities of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Father, we need, we need something large in days like today. We need a big foundation. We need a big message of hope and truth. We need the gospel. We pray, God, that you would anchor it in our hearts in this place, even right now as we listen here and gather together. Anchor our hearts in the gospel and who you are and what you have done for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.